0: I am Jeff, lead pastor of Northview Community Church in Abbotsford, British Columbia. And this podcast is where I get a chance to interview people about things that I'm interested in and talk about whatever I want to talk about.
1: Hello, I'm Levi, the producer, and I wanted to give you an update regarding the course that this podcast is going to be taking over the coming weeks. As you likely know, hopefully this isn't the first time you're hearing about this, uh, Jeff is heading to pastor a church in Chicago starting at the beginning of July, and thus, that is when our podcast will be coming to an end. Uh, We still have a few more episodes to record and release to you. Some are with familiar voices, uh, and some will be altogether new for you. So, that being said, stay tuned for those as they keep coming out weekly. For today, Jeff recorded a conversation with his friend Matt Jones, who is the pastor of Del Rey Church in Playa Del Rey, California. They talk about Matt's experience and studies in the area of the racial history of evangelicalism in Los Angeles, in particular. It's a really interesting conversation, uh, so we think it'll be really good for you to listen to.
0: Well, I'm here with uh, the esteemed Dr. Matt Jones. Matt, have you ever heard the song, uh, Mr. Jones? Is it by Counting Crows? Something like that? 1990? You're a kid of the 90s, aren't you? Uh,
2: a little older, and I don't I do not do rock. Too. Whatever, Matt. You love rock. You love it. Me and Mrs. Jones got a thing going on. <laughs> no, that one.
0: <laughs> so Matt Jones is here. He is the pastor of Del Delray Bible Church in uh Marina Del Rey. Is it Marina Del Rey? Playa Del Rey? Playa Del Rey, California. If you fly into LAX, you go right over it. And it's beautiful and amazing. And he's got this great church that is phenomenal, uh, both because of its bold proclamation and its multicultural um, vibe. And it's one of my favorite churches in the whole world. I've preached there once or twice, and I uh, always want to go back, but Matt never invites me back, because I must have said something to make him mad. No, no. <laughs> Matt and I uh, studied together with, at Talbot School of Theology, did our doctorates there, and he's doing another doctorate now, a real one, one that counts, uh, PhD. And Matt, what is the, what is the title of your, your dissertation you're writing now?
2: Oh, oh, that's a good one. It's gone through various iterations, but the current title of my dissertation is Reckoning with White Flight and Faith, an Ethno-Theological Case Study of Racial History and Evangelical Memory in Post-War Los Angeles. <laughs> it's, a it's a mouthful. It
0: is, but, but you have been spending an enormous amount of time in the last number of years and probably a lot of your life interacting with some of the racial dynamics in, in L.A., uh, which has gotten you involved in uh, thinking about a lot of the racial dynamics in the States. And so I always love talking to you about this kind of stuff. This is going to be good fun. Hey, can you just let the people who we're talking to uh, know who you are, where you came from? Uh, yeah, why you don't invite me to preach more?
2: You, you are welcome to preach anytime. And uh, let, let, it, let it be heard on this, uh, on this recording here. I've always said that in the event of my untimely death... I've already told my wife that uh, Jeff Bucknum is giving is giving the message that day because I trust that it will be biblical and gospel centered and challenging. You you are actually one of my favorite uh, preachers to listen to. So uh, uh, I feel buttered uh, up now, Matt. Thank you. Man crushing. Uh, <laughs> I'm a child of the '70s. I was born in Southern California. I was raised in uh, Inglewood, California, where I currently live. Um, and I was the son of a pastor I was uh, my parents were we'll put a name on it my parents were married by Chuck Swindoll what? And, and they you know they went back into the the evangelical free church movement in Southern California and the big boom around Chuck Swindoll my dad uh, graduated from uh, Biola College and went on to Talbot Seminary uh, my wife my, my mom excuse me also attended Biola And they were just, you know, a young, dynamic couple who wanted to serve the Lord. And uh, they took uh, a church in Inglewood in the 70s at a a time when white flight was uh, sort of uh, creating a lot of shifts in Southern California, in particular in Los Angeles and urban centers really around the United States. Um, And in, in the midst of that pastorate, their marriage began to unravel. I was a little boy. It was a Sunday morning before church on a Sunday. We lived in a parsonage. That that the house was just on top of the sanctuary and it was a Sunday morning when my parents sat my brother and I down and said we're getting a divorce and we're going to let the church know this morning and we walked down to service that day and our whole lives really really just unraveled. So as a as a young boy, I uh went from this living literally in a church in inner city Los Angeles in Inglewood, uh, which at the time was predominantly African-American. And there was this once thriving, small, dying uh, white congregation that my dad was pastoring. And I, I didn't have the categories to talk about it at the time. Uh, this has sort of taken shape throughout you know, the course of my life in ministry and academic stuff. But, uh, and so that's a reason why I'm doing a lot of the research. I'm just kind of making sense out of my own. Uh, lived experience. So yeah, that was the 70s, 80s. My parents got divorced. My dad, um, you know, there's not much you can do with an MDiv in a conservative evangelical tradition when when you've had a divorce, uh, a messy divorce. So he uh, he went to police academy and became a cop. So uh, as a little boy, my dad transitioned from pastor to cop, single parent dad. He took my brother and I um, and we'd visit our mom on occasion, and she ended up leaving the city and the state altogether. And um, yeah, so it was a it was a weird upbringing. I was the only white male in my junior high class, so I was raised in a context where I was you know the minority, if you will. Um, but the one place of sort of white culture was church on Sunday. So the rest of my life, where I lived, where I went to school was uh, very black and brown, but church on Sunday was always white, and I I resented the church after the divorce, and, you know, as a kid, you're trying to process the, you know, your parents getting divorced, but it's complicated when you're a pastor's kid, because, you know, I lost my bedroom, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, other kids' parents get divorced, whatever, so we lost our church, our bedroom, I was a bit uh, confused, uh, uh, To to state it succinctly, and it would be later in life that uh, someone, a friend at work was witnessing to me and began to challenge my life with regard to the gospel. And uh, honestly, he was kind of badgering me in ways. He'd keep bringing it up. And I told him, man, I, I, like, I believe in Jesus. Like, you know, I used to be a pastor's kid. Come on, you know. Uh, and, he's, and, and he challenged me, this guy, Patrick Short. God bless his name forever. He said, well, if you believe in Jesus, why are you living your life the way you're living it? You know, I was just doing the L.A. thing and bouncing around and getting involved in all types of rebellion. And through Pat, Pat, Pat's witness in my life, I, I ended up uh, really re- repenting of sin and coming to the Lord and getting plugged into a church where I was discipled uh, really for the first time, though raised by a used-to-be-pastor-turned-cop uh, dad who told me about Jesus. It really took shape there as a 19-year-old. And I ended up uh, wanting to learn more about the Bible than what the church could give me. And I ended up enrolling in Bible college at Biola, of all places. So all of the things that I didn't want to do, having watched my parents went to Biola and their whole lives fall apart. And thought, what am I doing at Biola, of all places? So I ended up doing some Bible degrees, doing grad school, seminary. And, you know, we met each other uh, working on doctorates at Talbot and uh, and I had a lot of just kind of stuff I wanted to explore more, which led to the Ph.D. kind of trying to make sense out of, you know, white evangelicalism, theology, racism.
0: Well, you and did it, your you did D-Men stuff in, in slavery as well, right? Doctor of Ministry stuff. You wrote a dissertation on that.
2: Yeah. And that was that was another thing like, you know, Biola was it's a predominantly white white space and so in the course of you know studying there it it was really disconnected from my life in the city and my ministry context so for example there was an ethics class that i took i'll never forget this in in my ma program we took an ethics class and won't say names or anything but uh, the professor of the class wrote a textbook that a lot of evangelical institutions use and so you know in the course of studying ethics uh, you know we're looking at you know sexuality we're looking at i i mean gambling uh cohabitation we even got a lecture on cohabitation and at the end of it you know i i sat with the professor and i said you know we had a whole ethics class here we didn't talk about racism Mm. like why didn't we talk about racism he's like well everyone knows that's wrong i'm like do do (laughs) they you know and i you know i'm like we didn't talk about slavery you know and and professor's like well you know that was a long time ago and i go No, like human trafficking is a is uh, bigger than slavery's ever been before. Like, like slavery is is huge. What are you talking about? Um, Incidentally, in the updated version of that textbook, they've now addressed it. But it's still sort of a timestamp to think like there's generations of evangelical leaders that take ethics class. uh, Right. To prepare them for ministry. And they've never reflected on, you know, the conditions that people are facing in urban centers all around the world. Uh, to boot los angeles like biola is the bible institute of los angeles you're the training institution for los angeles and you're not talking about racism and slavery and uh, urban issues that impact uh, those who will be ministering in these contexts so uh, for the doctor of ministry program i i got really interested in like what would it look like to do a project a dissertation addressing you know slavery and abolitionism and contemporary human trafficking so i've just been kind of trying to do my part to plug in some of the holes that i see in uh evangelicalism particularly white evangelicalism because i'm in a weird place where i'm white uh ethnically but i wasn't raised in white culture so i i don't totally identify with it uh, but i look really white so uh i'm you know I'm, I'm sort of studying issues and bringing awareness to things that i think others within uh you know uh, white evangelicalism might not think about, or you know, perhaps when people of color bring it up, they might be marginalized, as you know, oh, the angry black man who's bringing up slavery, that was so long ago, get over it already. Uh, but here's a white guy who's really interested in studying it. Um, so yeah, that's kind of what I'm up to, and I'm a pastor at heart, so all that is just on the side. And uh, in terms of pastoral ministry, in the course of this research project and my own story. I discovered. I don't know if I told you this before, but we had our 50th anniversary. Our church is 60 plus years old now, but like some 10 years ago, uh, I've been pastoring there like 20 20 something years now. But some on our 50th anniversary, I hunted down the pastor who planted the church. Wow! And uh, and I'm like, hey, we're having a 50th. We're gonna make some T-shirts. <laughs> we're going to have a party. Well, you know, we made some coffee mugs, uh, 1959 on them, you know, celebrating, uh, the, the, you know, the the church. And I, I, you know, I like, I would love to have you come preach on a Sunday. I'd love to, you know, like, let's celebrate this. Let's talk about this, tell the story, you know? And as I was talking to him, you know, it's like, Hey, how did the church get started? It was like, Oh, we came out of downtown Los Angeles. And I, I have in my mind, 1959, you know, I know sort of the data points of the church well the 50s like that's the that's the white flight era i'm thinking why why did you guys plant the church he goes well you know like you know people are moving and it just seemed like a good time and the west side of los angeles like the beach was just wide open real estate and you know you're you're able to buy cheap land and people are moving and you know so you know uh it just made sense to go there and you know plant a church or whatever And like what happened to the the church, you know, the downtown church. And I started asking questions, long story short. And and then he just he goes, well, I mean, you know, we had to get out of there. I'm like, what do you what do you mean? You know, And he's like, well, those people started moving in. Yeah. And and, and that's kind of where, you know, having white skin, I guess, come, you know, serves a, a a utility there. And he just He's telling me like I would agree with him that basically we had to get out of there because minorities were coming in and it just wasn't, you know, it wasn't safe anymore. Um, they're 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 bringing in their their rap music and their you know their gangs and all it just all these crazy stereotypes. So, anyway, as I'm talking to him, I'm I'm put in this weird place because on the one hand I want to celebrate this church that's been in West L.A. Uh, for you know fifty years on the other hand i'm i 'm realizing oh shoot our our story our ecclesial biography includes sort of this racialized terrain and, and and of course, you know this already, you know just i mean you know the country has a racialized uh history a past to reckon with but i'm 'm sort of processing that as a guy who 's taken over a church that has this racialized past, so I start hunting down old members of the church and just finding their stories and why they left, where they left. And, and I start hearing stories of white flight. And I thought to myself, I, I want to examine the theology that undergirds why white people thought to themselves, we got to get out of here. Um, well, you know, there's missionary. we're sending missionaries around the world who will die for the gospel, but we've got these Southern California uh, congregations that are following the white flight pattern and uh, planting churches just based around white flight. Uh, And then you watch downtown, the downtown urban center, you watch these churches die and close Mm -hmm. down. And in fact, in the process, you start noticing whole institutions like, uh, you know, our our alma mater, Biola. Biola used to be in the downtown. Biola Mm -hmm. left the downtown in 1959, the same year that my church was planted. Um, and, And there were other Christian colleges in the downtown. Chapman was a Christian college that left the downtown. Pepperdine was a Christian college that left the downtown and went and to Malibu now, Malibu, right? you know, White Topia. Um, McClay School of Theology that later became Claremont left the downtown. Life Pacific University left the downtown. Um, what is now known as the Master's College or Master's University was also in the downtown. Uh, at the time, it was the Los Angeles uh, Baptist uh, uh, Theological Seminary. Matt, Matt, why, why? So you're, you're studying this stuff
0: now. Is it possible for you to give like a synopsis of why? I mean, I'm, I'm listening to all that. I'm interested both in why it happened then and whether you think uh, that kind of those kinds of forces are still at play.
2: Yeah, I think those forces are still at play, but they they are less overtly racialized. So, uh, you know, sort of the, the pastor I was talking about would say, well, you know, they moved in and those people... And he would be candid about certain racialized uh, ideologies, you know. Uh, in particular, this pastor said, at first it was kind of interesting when they started to come to church, but then we started to worry about whether or not our children would marry one another. And we knew, you know, we knew that wasn't okay. So you start seeing uh, sort of theologies of like Curse of Cain and, uh, you know, weird hermeneutical gymnastics. Using What's the Curse t- of Cain? For people who don't know, what 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 is that? Uh, the Curse of Cain is uh, it's, uh, a white supremacist uh, reading of Torah that understands uh, Cain being cursed by God, uh, the curse being specifically black skin. Hmm. Uh, and so Cain is, uh, is marked by God with black skin. Uh, and, and this becomes, you know, if you Google Curse of Cain, you'll see, like, there's all sorts of, uh, uh, of folks who held to Curse of Cain theology um, that that extends quite back. In fact, you'll find curse of Cain theology uh, going into kind of Biola history and some of the the early professors and pastors that were tied to Biola. Yeah, so, th-
0: so this sort of stuff wasn't like off way off there in in people who you know evangelicals would say, well, they're they're you know it uh, was it was evangelicals who hold held a lot of this stuff.
2: Yeah, it gets a little murky, though, because it, it, it depends to evangelicalism as, a, as like a socio-ecclesial uh, group is kind of hard to define. I, I think a lot of it is more fundamentalist than it is 20th century evangelicalism. But because fundamentalism and evangelicalism uh, cross pollinate, they cross over quite a bit. Um, so I, I, if I had to point the finger at something, I think it, it thrived more in fundamentalism and then found its way into evangelicalism. And then, you know, kind of neo-evangelical movements started seeing some of this and wanting to address it. Um, however, they weren't aggressive in doing it, so that, you know, evangelicalism as we know it in the current moment still has uh, ties to it. And
0: even- Does it, Matt? Does it? Like, you're talking about 1959, and I can hear myself and others thinking, ah, yeah, but that's, you know, that was for the Civil Rights Movement and that kind of stuff. What, what, about, what about now?
2: Yeah, I mean, we have historical ties to it. So these are our institutions that trained our leaders that, you know, are the ones who are, you know, still, you know, leading in the movement and raising up the generation. So I, I don't think it's far-fetched to believe that there's some kind of residual that, you know, that shapes these, the, these sorts of things. I just don't think it's, it's not overt in the way that it once was, you know, it's not legal anymore, for example. Uh, where where institutions in days of old like you know Bob Jones did not admit african americans um and and fought literally fought the irs uh you know to maintain its its uh its white supremacy uh and and had on the books uh no interracial dating clause into 2000 no uh, into the 2000s so you you go like no. like, like this is insane oh when you look at this gosh. history and and something like that like like Bob Jones is an institution, um w- you know, without without naming any names here. But uh, a lot of our evangelical leaders that we currently revere were, you know, were trained at Bob Jones as an institution. So, you, you know, and and Biola had a relationship with with Bob Jones. So, I mean, you, you think about this: 1969. So let's move past 59 to 1969. There was a group of black families that brought a class action uh, Suit to enjoin the Secretary of the Treasury and the Commissioner of the IRS to revoke uh, tax-exempt status of white private schools, uh, so-called segregation academies. And so, like this, go this goes all the way up. You know, 1971 is Green v. Connolly, resulting in the Supreme Court decision that all tax-exempt private schools had to desegregate. So Bob Jones, in the post Green v. Connolly 1971, it is still like throwing down with segregation type stuff. I mean, Bob Jones, you gave an honorary doctorate to one of the leading white supremacists at the time, George Wallace and uh, James Strom Thurmond. So in 1970, the IRS starts going after Bob Jones's exemption status. And in order to skirt the IRS in 71, Bob Jones admitted one part-time black student. Um, this is 17 years after Brown versus Board of Education. Wow. So they admitted one part time black student who dropped out a month later. And then in the mid 70s, the IRS just continues pressuring Bob Jones, um, particularly around another U.S. Supreme Court case, Runyon versus um, McCrary, it was, in which racial discrimination in private schools was again confirmed to be unconstitutional. So 1974. But they just kept digging in. They kept digging in. So, 1974, BJU formally removed their whites-only um, policy, and they admitted a few black students again to try and skirt it. But the only black students that they admitted were married ones because they had on their handbooks no interracial dating. Yeah, camp. all the way to the 2000s. So, but 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 okay, Matt, but
0: but Bob Jones is Bob Jones, right? That's totally different than than other things than other churches. So, is isn't it too too much to say that? you know, evangelical or or churches or Christians struggle with racism these days. Isn't that going too far? I'm not, I'm asking that as a softball brother. I'm just,
2: (laughs) yeah. I mean, you know, you've got like, again, you got Bob Jones, like officially apologizing for this racial history in the two thousands. Uh, I mean like, so when, when people do the, you know, it wasn't that long ago kind of thing. It's like, yeah, but like, you guys just apologize for this in the 21st century. Um, and so there, there's a residual effect from that when you have these, these institutions that have this racialized past and haven't been proactive in terms of like, you know what, how do we reckon with our history? I mean, you know I went to Biola and Biola did not admit black students uh, in, at its founding. Uh, in the 1800s, they they discriminated against black students. Uh, they had a no black student policy. I've combed through the archives and and found in uh, in the publications of the institution just racialized rhetoric, and you go oh like this is like that's a part of the DNA and so, uh, so how is that um, DNA how is that
0: DNA played out played out now in the in the present in the present moment like I think this is what people are trying to say I I don't want to. Uh, put words in people's mouths, but when people use language like systemic, I think this is what they're trying to say, is that the history bleeds out through the DNA somehow. And it doesn't mean that, like you said, it's overt. It just plays out. So can you tell me
2: how it plays out? Oh, that's a messy question. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, Mexican, mean, it was clean. I, mean, part, I mean, part of it is, you know, part of it is I'm I'm an interdisciplinary guy who's doing like theology that intersects with social science and, you know, North American history. And I'm not a public policy person. I'm not, you know, I'm not a, a sociologist. Um, so I, I use the word residual to say there's residual effects. Um, putting putting my finger exactly on where that is or how that is when you're dealing with social phenomenon is, is a difficult thing. So a lot of people like today in the conversation about uh, the concept of systemic justice, you know, they'll point out and say, well, there's no such thing as systemic injustice because there's no jurisprudence anymore. We don't have, you know, Jim Crow. have changed, yeah. Therefore, it's gone. And in a legal sense, I would agree. Like, yeah, I don't see Jim Crow. I don't see Jim Crow jurisprudence anymore. Um, However, I don't I don't think that I think we're talking past one another at that point because people who. Are talking about systemic injustice, aren't talking about it in jurisprudential terms, uh, and they're looking at it more in terms of social terms. You know, so so in terms of, and I love Biola. So anyone listening to this, you know, I pray my kids will go there, and uh, I, I, you know, I love the institution. Uh, not picking on Biola here. I'm I'm forever indebted to them, and uh, and uh, hey, that's where we became friends. So yeah. that's where it all began, the Bucknum Jones uh, <laughs> posse. So. Uh, But if you Googled like right now, Biola racism or whatever, you know, you're going to get hits. You're going to see last year, the president of the institution, uh, Barry Corey, was issued a letter on racial injustice. You you will hit blogs about, you know, students that are mad um, uh, about this or that. And, uh, you know, white parents who are mad that their kids were uh, in a class where a professor brought up. Uh, systemic injustice, and they think that that's reverse racism, and, uh, you know, and I'm friends with professors there, and, you know, they share about things they're facing, and, you know, and they're trying to navigate this space, because, hey, a lot of the people talking about uh, social justice are typically uh, coming from liberal traditions, and they have theological baggage, and so there's there's people who are concerned about it. There's a professor uh, there now who's written a book on it, and, uh, you know, so they're still, as an institution, talking about it. So that shows, in my mind, if you're saying, "Well, if, if someone says it, it's not an issue anymore," and then I would say, "Well, why is there? Why are they talking about it then? Why? Why is it in the interwebs? Why are they? You know, it's still an issue. They're still talking about it." So, Matt, what what does the? Um,
0: you're a pastor. You said that you're you're not a sociologist or a, an expert in policy, but y- you are a pastor and a theologian. So, as a pastor. Uh, how are you leading your church to try to um, bridge some of the racial gaps and to deal with some of the racial histories, and like, are there things specifically that you do in Los Angeles where you, where you are that you would do, wouldn't, you, know, you understand what I mean, like are, are there, is your church attempting to try to make a difference in this sphere?
2: I, yes, um, yes, a lot of it is organic. Um, because i'm an la guy so like a lot of what is happening in, in our church in terms of like um people of different ethnic groups coming together in our church to worship god uh, a lot of that i think has just happened organically because of my upbringing so um you know i'm i live in a i live in a city that is less than five percent white now gentrification is is drastically going to change that but Uh, You know, when you look at, you know, my friends or my community or the people I'm trying to reach, uh, a lot of them are people of color. And then I pastor a church in a section of the town that, you know, was uh, once segregated, was formed by white flight. Um, And, you know, so a lot of the section of the town where I am are, are, they're white. And so white folks looking for a church in their neighborhood who moved to California for the you know, the California dream or whatever, end up going there. But you don't live there. But I don't live there. I couldn't afford to live there. I don't live there. Uh, and, and we draw people from all around the city. So a lot of it just happens because where we are, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of people who think, I don't know, every church should be multicultural or multiethnic. Well, you can't do that everywhere, but we're in Los Angeles. So if you go into a restaurant on the West side, it's integrated. You go into a Starbucks, it's integrated. You go to schools, they're integrated. Uh, but churches are still, in in the famous words of Martin Luther King Jr., uh, experiencing the most segregated hour in our culture on Sunday morning. They're, they're still, uh, you know, these segregated hubs that haven't brought over. But in our case, our church is organically made of L.A. people. So there's lots of interracial marriages. There's lots of, I mean, my own family, well, there's 20,000 orphans in Los Angeles County. So we live the adoption life and the fostering life. How many so. kids do you have, met? We have seven kids, and three of them are adopted, and so different different races too. You got
0: some some kids from Asian backgrounds and some uh, African American backgrounds, yeah.
2: Yeah, Hispanic, African American, and Asian. So, like, you know, my family is the LA story. So, you know, my kids invite their friends to church. I invite my friends to church. Uh, We we just we end up doing it because we're living life in LA. But what becomes pastorally important is to educate people on the history. So like Los Angeles, a lot of people think like, oh, we're L.A., like we're progressive. uh, And I don't mean that in the in the negative theological sense, but we're progressive. Like we didn't have a Jim Crow. Well, then you got to educate people and teach them like, no, actually, we we had a very significant Jim Crow, perhaps worse than the South. Even the 70 mile coastline of L.A. County was for whites only. Our beaches were segregated. You can read uh, Victor Hugo Green's uh, The Negro Motorist Green Book and you can go back in the history and see the places of L.A. that were safe and the places that weren't. There are two uh, black beaches in L.A. County that uh, even right now they're fighting for uh, reparation and historic monuments around Bruce's Beach and Manhattan Beach. There's another one, the Inkwell in Santa Monica. Uh, so like showing people like, look this was a little piece of the beach that white people let black people go to. Like, the rest of it was segregated. Hey, this area over here, they used to have sundown town signs, like, no blacks after night. Hey, California, by the way, the 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution that gave rights to protect black people in 1868, the 14th Amendment in California was ratified in 1959. Whoa. So, like, the 15th Amendment, which granted voting rights to black people in 1870, the 15th Amendment... Was initially rejected by California, and it wasn't ratified until 1962. And this Cal- is
0: California we're talking about. I mean, that's the challenge. Yeah, that's the challenge that we're talking about because
2: the, you know the other. Yeah, it's considered. Like Engle, yeah, Inglewood, where I'm at, like Inglewood, the, the you know notorious Inglewood uh, of you know like Inglewood had a KKK chapter in it up in, up into the up until the 50s. Inglewood's first black police officer was hired in in 1969. So like you know, there there you start talking about residual effects. Like before going into ministry, I worked for the Inglewood Police Department. And right. Cooking.
0: So that's one of the one of the pieces of your story that's really interesting is that you you actually went the opposite way from your dad. That he went from uh, pastor to cop. You went from cop to pastor.
2: Yeah. So and I swore to myself I'd never become a pastor. And I ended up you know working for Inglewood. My dad worked for Inglewood School Police. So he was pretty connected to a lot of folks and. Uh, and I, you know, and I respected my dad, my dad cared about the neighborhood and wanted to give back and was working, uh, in the Inglewood, uh, unified school district and the high schools. They have, you know, armed post-certified police working for the city. And so I grew up with a dad as a cop and I kind of respected him for that. And, uh, and then I ended up throwing my hat in the game to try and get hired. And, uh, early in my twenties, I, I got in and, uh, joined as a cadet and started working in patrol and, Uh, And thought this is what I'm going to do. I love this. I'm able to help my community, blah, blah, blah. This, uh, this, this was short lived. I lasted about a year and a half in it. Um, It was particularly difficult because I'm from Inglewood. So like. Uh, You know, my friends are getting DUIs (laughs) and, uh, you know, and I'm put in situations where I'm like, now I'm persona non grata. Uh, You know, Matt, what are you doing? Like, you know, there is this tension in the inner city between police. That is a reality. I grew up in the city. I've been beaten up by police. I've run from the police. Uh, But it was a paying gig and I got in and I was excited about it. And uh, long story short, I was sitting on a dead body at the iconic uh, Randy's Donuts. If you've watched any uh, cinema around Southern California, you've seen the iconic Randy's Donuts. There was a carjacking of a youth, and I was like the first responder who got there. Uh, uh, this glass everywhere, dead body on the ground, and we were trying to figure out what happened. Uh, decapitated, he was shot through the head. His head was essentially gone, and there's just glass everywhere. and through eyewitness testimony and cameras and stuff, we pieced together that he was sitting in his car and some dudes rolled up on him, shot him through the shot him through the the glass, ripped his dead body out, took his car and jumped right on the freeway. The coroner was backed up that night, and since I was a cadet, I was a boot, I sat there to write the dead body report and waited for hours, literally watching his his blood coagulate on the ground. And I thought to myself, like, because at this point I was I was active in church, you know, I was. I was uh, trying to take Bible classes and be a Bible major in college. And I thought, this is pointless. Like, I can't help people in this uniform because the people I want to reach, I mean, when I was was running around and rebelling against God, you know, police officers were the last people I would try and listen to. And this kid in particular on that night, he's dead. He's gone. I can't tell him about the Lord. And if I had met him hours earlier and tried to tell him about the Lord— Uh, You know, my uniform alone, you know, would have presented an obstacle for him. Granted, I am fully reformed and there. You know, uh, there are no obstacles besides our regenerate hearts. But uh, in any any case, I sat that night and I I told myself, I want to do this ministry thing. And I was really just wrestling with it because I was a kid of a of a failed pastor. And I thought, I don't want to be that guy. I don't I don't want to I don't I had so many scars from church and hypocrisy and parents and this and that. I, 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 I didn't want to do that. And I've got this great job that's paying well. And anyway, sitting on that dead body, the Lord really worked. And I had a sense of calling uh, that night that I was already having a feeling of calling that was leading me to take Bible classes and wanting to learn more about the Bible. I want to read it in Greek. I want to read it in Hebrew. I was, I was was I was hungry for the word, but that night it turned really into a call. And I told my sergeant, like, I'm giving my, you know, two months notice and, um, and everyone was really disappointed in me cause I was a young hire and, um, you know, they spent a lot of time training and whatever. And I felt really conflicted about it. Um, but I, I left and then I went full time into Bible college and I got a job working at the church that I'm at now yeah. running youth ministry. And I, I've never looked back, um, and I'm I'm thankful for the journey in that. But yeah. I but the dynamic now that we that we are in, you know, Dante Wright this year, right? Um uh, you know, this post George Floyd ministry moment. Um we're we're just constantly seeing conversations around Michael Brown, Trayvon Martin, Tamir Rice, Eric Garner, Freddie Gray, Alton Sterling, Philandro Castile, uh Stephen Clark. Um Matt, uh, you had
0: a friend just recently who you uh I mean, this is a real issue for you. You have, you have a friend who is, who has, uh, faced the cops and died from it.
2: Yeah. I, uh, last, last, last year, 2020, uh, my phone starts blowing up, turn on the news and turn on the news. Friends are calling my phone, turn on the news, turn on the news. And we're watching our friend get, we're watching our friend die on TV. A childhood friend of mine. In fact, I have little bracelet from his funeral service right, right here, hanging next to my desk. Um, and, uh, he, African-American guy grew up in LA. We've been friends since we were kids, super close. He's like a brother to me. Um, and he was dealing with some, some, some slight mental health issues and he would, uh, he would, uh, go homeless and sort of leave the house and, would always come back. You know, he would get to a place where life was going well. He was working hard. He was, he was married, had some kids and uh, he wouldn't want to take his medication because he feel like everything's going fine and he'd stop. And then slowly things start to unravel when you do that. And he would uh, get paranoid. And so he would go homeless and kind of feel safe homeless. Um, and he, he would do that. He would walk down to my church even and see me down there and I pray for him. And You know, his mom's really near and dear to me. I'm like, you you know, your mom loves you. Your sister loves you. We love you. What can we do? And, you know, and then usually he'd come back around and, um, start taking his meds and get, get, you know, get a new job and get back on his feet kind of a thing. Well, this time it wasn't the case. He, um, he went, he went homeless and walked from Los Angeles to Orange County and was just doing, doing a homeless stint in Orange County for a couple of weeks um and we were all praying for him we you know his mom let us know like he left the house he hasn't come back whatever we're praying for him and and then we turn on our tvs and we're watching our friend get killed on tv he was walking the streets of orange county a black man two white police officers approach him uh, for the alleged crime of jaywalking
0: well and there's a debate too about whether he was or wasn't they were, in the, they were in their car themselves debating it, right?
2: There's new, new, new camera footage that surfaced of the two of them. Uh, you know, one of, one of the officers saying, hey, you know, let's pull him over, and what's the probable cause and whatever, and he's jaywalking. No, he's not really, and if you really want to geek out on uh, penal codes and vehicle codes in California and what constitutes jaywalking, uh, we could waste a lot of time on that, but I, I would contend he, he wasn't doing anything.
0: Regardless. Uh, he wasn't doing
2: anything, and yeah. even if he was, yeah. even if he was running across the street uh, in the middle of traffic, I, I think the way the altercation went down w- was avoidable. And uh, and you know, watch. You know, it's one thing to watch George Floyd die on camera, as we all did those those infamous nine minutes. And 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 then to see people process. Well, was his knee on the back? Was it on the neck? Was it? Was it the drugs in his system? Was it this? Was it that? And people want to debate like their coroners uh, over over the cause of death and whatever. That that that's one thing. Uh, when it's someone you know and love and are as close to you as as Kurt uh, was is to me. Uh, man, it's so hard uh, mm-hmm. to to read scriptures at his funeral. So so hard. I think we're all still uh, having our own kind of trauma over it and still processing it. I had a funeral this week um at 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 Inglewood Cemetery, that's where he's buried and kind of fresh on my mind like I I hadn't gone down to 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 see his where his body was laid to rest uh for for a few months and so just just this just this week actually. It was it was on Wednesday. Um, I was there, being reminded of it afresh. So yeah, like when you live in this, it's not theoretical. This isn't just you know, um, okay, Breonna Taylor, she was asleep. Some officers started shooting. She got yeah. shot. You know, what do we think about that? Like this, I like I love him. I and I and his family, and his mom, and his sister, and his brother-in-law, and his kids. And yeah, so it's rough. It's rough. And to see people disconnected from it particularly in uh, in churches uh, that this this has become like something that pastors are supposed to integrate into their churches. And (laughs) uh, it's just crazy. So in terms of your question that you asked about, like how we do multicultural or ethnic uh, church, it's cultivating a kind of environment where the polarized, the polarized voices of the culture, polarized and, and, and let me add monetized. Because the right is being monetized to make the right hate the left. And the left is being monetized to, uh, to, to, to make the left angry at the right. So they're, they're making money off of this stuff. And people in our congregations are being discipled by Fox and CNN. And they are coming into our congregations on a Sunday morning. And pastorally how we lead them in that. And, you know, and so I can get in front of my congregation and say, regardless of what you think about, you know, uh, this death or whatever, let me let me tell you about this man who I knew and loved. Let me tell you about his family. Let me tell you about his kids and really get people back to the place of the humanity of it all. Like George George Floyd is made in the image of God. Mm -hmm. Um, Stop. Stop deliberating, uh, especially for people who have no experience in law enforcement, use of force. uh, You know, they're (laughs) They're not, they're not trained coroners by any stretch of the imagination. They haven't lived any of this stuff. Just just stop and just mourn with those who are mourning. And let's join together and seeking the Lord for, for his hand to move in our place. So I, I think a lot of that is just happening organically because we're L.A. people. Yeah. And as I hear pastors outside of this context, um, I just think it's going to be rougher for them because it's yeah. really just all theoretical. They're just a monolithic yeah. culture watching the news. So Matt, you know what, the reason I,
0: one of the key reasons I wanted to talk to you is number one, you are one of the most interesting people in the world. uh, As people can tell by your conversations, sharp guy and has all sorts of great background and I would love to talk to you forever. But secondly, I also just wanted people to hear that there are really smart people who are thinking very deeply about issues regarding race and how the church responds and all that and that we should be open-minded and open-hearted toward our brothers and sisters of different uh, races within our faith who have a different story and be willing to, to hear them. And uh, it, it is time that the church can step into these moments and bring some kind of unity where the rest of the world is trying to breed uh, disunity. And uh, so anyway, brother, I'm so thankful that you've had a chance to talk to me. I could talk to you forever. Hey, if anybody has anything they want to learn about uh, regarding some of the stuff you talked about, do you have any like recommendations of a book that you would recommend for people to read about? You know, from a Christian point of view, from a racial dynamics, or uh, something that uh, you would recommend uh, for? I don't know, maybe in history of Los Angeles, fascinating history, by the way. I mean, yeah.
2: Uh, before before the resource question, on the note of the sharing of stories, like you said, I think it's also important to qualify it with. We are not, you know, postmodernists just running around t- telling stories, and at the end of the day, like, there is no objective reality in it. So, like, we, we story tell, we listen to one another, and there are objective realities. There are objective realities uh, with regard to what justice is, uh, with regard to social dimensions, with yeah. regard to racism, with with, with regard to use, use of police force, etc., etc., so... Like I think it's important to listen, but it's also important to, like, lest we be misunderstood here, I'm saying this, uh, because often in these conversations where that's brought up, you have people operating from paradigms. We are committed uh, objectivist evangelicals who believe in in an inspired word and objective reality. On that note, transitioning to resources, that's kind of what makes it hard uh, is because people who typically are a little more sensitive empathetic or know the stories are typically operating from different traditions than us now there are those with our within you know an evangelical tradition uh in particular a reformed one who are operating in their writing stuff but they've been marginalized and they've been mischaracterized and you know they say hey this was you know uh, racism is real or whatever and all of a sudden you know that's that's cultural marxism uh you know that's that's uh, Frankfurt School, you know, and, and and you ask them, like, have you read the primary sources on any of this? And they have no idea. But, you know, they, they, they watched a YouTube video and they know everything about it. So I, I hesitate to recommend resources because the resources that I think actually get a lot of the history and stuff are typically more left. They they're kind of more left of leaning. And then the ones that aren't. They're just getting marginalized. So if yeah. I said if I recommended something, then people listening to this would just write me off. as... You need to write something, then Matt. So that's what hopefully uh, I'm. I've submitted my thesis. I'm in the editing. title
0: for the popular book. Can I just recommend a different title for the popular
2: book? Yeah, yeah. I think th- I think it could really work into because I have chapters on like white evangelical racism. You know, like it could probably break down into some different stuff and. There are great books. Maybe we can post some links or something yeah, like that. Yeah,
0: that sounds good. If
2: are interested rather than verbally saying it, because I, I just hesitate because I, good. I, I'm, a, I'm a pastor and I want to like bring yep. people. And I think if I start naming names of books... Right, that, you
0: get that, into the tribalism.
2: I get into that tribalism yeah. and, and they go, see, I knew you were that, you know, right. I knew you were that guy. So. so can I just
0: thank you, my, my liberal progressive friend, Matt, for being part of this conversation Oh, did you? Are you gonna offended about that? Is that the line? That's you're, you're it. Triggering me. <laughs> God bless you, brother. God bless you so much. Thanks so much. Hey, it's great to talk to all you guys. Uh, I'll catch you next time. Thanks for listening to Conversations with Jeff. Make sure you subscribe to catch up on all upcoming episodes. So until next time, love God, do what you want, and don't be stupid.